Hello and welcome to In Control, the first podcast on control theory. Here we discuss the science of feedback, decision-making, artificial intelligence, and much more. I'm your host, Alberto Paduan, live from a recording studio in Zurich. Quick thanks to our sponsor, the National Center of Competence in Research on Dependable Ubiquitous Automation and the International Federation of Automatic Control. Our guest today is Davide Scaramuzza, Professor of Robotics and Perception at the University of Zurich, where he leads the Robotics and Perception Group. Welcome to the show, Davide. Thank you, Alberto. So it's an honor and pleasure to have you here today. We are definitely have to talk about a lot of things, uh, among which uh, event-based cameras for sure, and agile flying uh, with uh, drones. But maybe before we start, in doing my homework, I was looking at uh, your uh, uh, curriculum and I was struck by the fact that you do have a passion for uh, magic. So can you tell us what does magic have to do with robotics or <laughs> if they do? Actually, it's a very good question. And I think they do have something in common because in robotics, basically, you want to build systems that are autonomous, that basically move by themselves. And in magic, uh, you also want to make objects basically behave as if they have their own soul so they can move by themselves. So they share something in common. And what's your favorite type of magic? My favorite type of magic is a close-up, which is usually done with the cards, coins and ropes. And the only trick that I know is the disappearing coin trick, but I guess that's the, the most basic. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite one? Uh, I do, I do. Um, it's uh, the ambitious card. It's a card that always comes to the top of the deck with, wherever you put it in the deck. Okay. And it's signed. Okay. I didn't know this, uh, this trick, but I will definitely look it up. And the magician who inspired you along the way, do you, do you have a favorite one? Or? Yeah, actually the magician that uh, brought me into this field of magic was David Copperfield. When I saw him the first time on TV, I said, oh my God, how does he do that? And so I wanted to learn that. The, the only thing that I remember about David Copperfield is him like heading towards the Niagara Falls, uh, locked into some uh, basically, I don't know, yellow thing. And he was managed somehow to, to get out just before falling. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, what I like about David Copperfield is that he revolutionized magic because he ventured into the impossible. And I think this also is something that I like a lot about robotics, trying to do things that, that seem apparently not achievable. Okay. And so is that what attracted you? That was actually my next question. What, what was it that uh, attracted you towards the field of robotics? Um, I was always attracted uh, to robots since I was probably three, when my father took me to the movie theater to watch uh, one of the Star Wars movies. And, um, but then it was actually when I studied electronics engineering uh, at the University of Perugia that uh, I started to really uh, become interested in robotics. And actually my first uh, experience in robotics uh, came with a master's thesis, which was about uh, visual um, slum-based navigation of a two-wheeled robot. Yeah, so that's essentially the, the topic uh, where you started. So right. SLAM and uh, mostly vision for robotics. And so that led you to start a PhD with uh, Roland Siedvard, a giant in the field of robotics. Uh, can you tell us a bit about uh, your um, uh, inception, if you want, into the field? Yes, indeed. So after the master degree in electronic engineering, I basically applied for an internship uh, with uh, Roland Siegwart. At the beginning, I wasn't sure I wanted to actually pursue a PhD. 
And uh, during those months uh, at the autonomous systems lab, I really became fascinated with robotics. So I was 100% sure that I wanted to, to really um, delve into the field. So I was um, uh, involved in, in a perception task. Uh, I was one of the few people at that time working on cameras. Um, which then nowadays is one of the, the main sensors actually used on robots, but who could have ever predicted that at the time? So it was in 2004 when I started my PhD and I was initially on uh, um, vision-based uh, localization, mapping and autonomous navigation uh, using a single camera um, for self-driving cars. So we had a smart car at the time equipped with different sensors and my task was about actually seeing what was possible to achieve using just a single camera. Then in 2009 uh, Google announced uh, the self-driving car project and then it became clear to me that uh, probably uh, self-driving car was actually now moving from academia to industry and it was probably time to look at different things, more exotic things. And so I discussed with Roland and then we saw that there was an opportunity to actually bring Visual Slam uh, and computer vision to the third dimension. And that's when actually I started working on drones. Okay. So that's, uh, I mean, uh, an excellent introduction into your journey. Uh, I just want to maybe clarify a couple of things and then maybe just move forward towards uh, flying. Um, so one thing is, uh, what is actually Slam? Uh, just for our audience, um, I, I would describe it as uh, basically constructing and updating a map while also tracking the location of an agent. And the other thing uh, was that you actually had a real smart, so a real smart car. It was a real car. Okay, and so you mentioned that in 2009, you veer off towards the world of drones. So first of all, I have a maybe a minor question, but I never really understand what is the difference between a quadcopter, a drone, and uh, an MAV, a uh, micro aerial vehicle. Uh, are they all the same thing? Are they different? So a drone is basically the superset that contains all the other ones that you mentioned. So a drone is basically an unmanned aerial vehicle. Okay. The word drone comes from the German word drone, which was uh, um, which actually refers to the male bee, and it was used to uh, um, to refer to an unmanned aerial vehicle uh, only 1919, <laughs> so more than a century ago. And um, then an MAV is a, an unmanned aerial vehicle, so a drone that is usually small and uh, weighs less than five kilograms, and it's uh, less than two meters uh, in size. However, often uh, it's intended that even uh, uh, as a smaller uh, UAV, like nowadays when we think of a quadcopter, so a four-rotor drone, we think of uh, the same hobby drones that we see around uh, when we go on vacation, flying around us, so about less than a kilo in weight and less than uh, half a meter in size. Okay, so size is really what determines uh, these sets. Size inclusions. and weight. Size and weight, okay. So you mentioned that in 2009 you moved towards drones, and I guess this coincides also with this uh, DARPA challenge. No, if you want, I can explain. In 2009, basically, um, we um, started a European project okay. named SFLY, okay. that stands for Swarm of Microflying Robots, and it was the first European project to investigate the use of onboard cameras to navigate drones in GPS-denied environments. Okay. So basically, um, 
And that was basically the initiation, the first motivation to start working on this. The DARPA project we are referring to came only in 2015. And uh, it, the program uh, I was involved in is called the FAST Lightweight Autonomous Program, Autonomy Program, FLA. And uh, it was a three-year project that was about developing a computer vision and navigation algorithms to fly drones as fast as possible without GPS, but just okay. using onboard cameras and inertial sensors. Okay, so I guess the maybe the obvious question for those who are not in the field is, why is flying without a GPS difficult? Flying without GPS is difficult because you have to use your onboard sensors. So um, what makes navigating with GPS easy is that you are relying on an external constellation of sensors, GPS, uh, of which you know perfectly their position, that uh, reliably send information about their position, and then your GPS receiver basically um, is able to triangulate the position of the, of the agent within a certain tolerance. The problem with GPS is that it's not available indoors, and even outdoors is not reliable, especially in proximity to buildings. So that's why if you want to have uh, a drone navigating close to buildings or inside buildings or even outdoors under the tree canopy, for example, so in forests, it's very important that you use onboard sensors. Now, when you look at onboard sensors, the only choices available are radar, LiDAR and cameras. But the problem is uh, radar uh, and LiDAR are active sensors, so you have to emit energy in the environment, which means you have to basically consume between 10 and 20 watts, which basically subtracts energy to the one you need to fly, even though 90% of the energy usually required by drone is used to fly. Um, but then another problem they have has to do with the poor uh, resolution of uh, the sensors in terms of angular resolution and also the weight. For example, a LiDAR um, can weight up to a kilo. Um, also, we have to think about the cost. Uh, now, when you put all these things into account and you want a drone that is uh, safe and that can fly uh, far, then you want a drone that actually uses uh, as lightweight uh, sensors as possible. And in this case, the only viable solution still nowadays is actually to use cameras. Um, one or multiple cameras, potentially with an inertial measurement unit, so an accelerometer and gyroscope, in order to provide not only redundancy, but also an additional point of failure. And, uh, and then uh, the algorithms will revolve around, basically, first a map in the environment, uh, so that you can localize the drone within the map. So that's uh, SLAM, what you correctly explained before. And then you need algorithms of planning and control in order to plan a collision-free trajectories and execute these trajectories. I'm definitely interested about talking about the control part at some point uh, later, but before, um, maybe I'd like to clarify one thing that I didn't understand. So normally the processing unit for these uh, drones is on board as well, or is it uh, outside? Uh, so, um, if you want the drone to be completely autonomous, then all the processing must be on board. Okay, so we're literally talking about an autonom fully autonomous fully machine. Fully autonomous machine, that's correct. Okay. Yes. Okay, um, and the second clarification that I wanted to ask is uh, regarding this S-Fly project, because I think, I mean, uh, I was watching some videos while preparing the show, and it was must have been amazing to be the first to, to demonstrate uh, vision-based uh, autonomous flight. I mean, that's according to my record. I don't know if I'm... Uh, 
That is correct. So to our knowledge, uh, basically our team, when I was still uh, a, a postdoc with Roland Sigvart, was the first to demonstrate the first vision-based autonomous flight. It happened uh, while we participated uh, in a competition organized at TU Delft core, uh, called the European Microaerial Vehicle Competition. And there they were asking teams to basically uh, take off from the floor of the gym of TU Delft, navigate 10 meters, enter a small mock-up apartment through the window, recognize a picture, and then either land or come back. And uh, our team demonstrated uh, the, that we could do this completely autonomously, while all the other teams were actually using FPV. So there was a pilot in the loop. It was only 10 meters of navigation that we did. And so then we passed through the window and then we crashed uh, inside <laughs> the apartment. But it was 10 meters that basically were historical because we didn't expect at that time that then this technology called vision-based navigation would have uh, so much impact. Because nowadays, now 13 years have passed since that event, we can find vision-based navigation on, on Skydio drones, DJI drones, Paro drones, uh, and even on the NASA Mars Ingenuity helicopter, which uses uh, a technique similar to what we were using uh, in 2009, basically a common filter that uh, fuses information from the National Measurement Unit uh, and Visual Slam. You're, you're anticipating my, my next question, which would be, um, what was it that actually made you make the leap somehow? So was it a technological advancement or was it in terms of algorithms and or putting things together? It was all of the three things that you mentioned combined. So in 2008, I was uh, uh, really um, astonished by the advances of visual slam, monocular slam, so with a single camera, no IMU. I had the chance to participate in the European uh, computer vision conference uh, in 2008 in Marseille. It was my first vision conference. I was coming from a robotics background, so I was only attending ICRA and IROS. So typically there were not uh, papers about uh, what I would see then at this uh, European computer vision conference. And I remember that uh, the first order of this paper called the PTAM, Parallel Tracking and Mapping Done in Real Time, demonstrated on stage during his oral presentation uh, something that was really amazing, that uh, was mind-blowing. So it was really able to map an entire, uh, the entire room, actually the entire auditorium, with a single camera in real time in his laptop. And that PTAM uh, piece of software was then made available open source. And then when I returned ho um, home, I asked uh, Roland, hey, what do you think about this? We should put it on, on a drone. What do you think? And then he said, yes, let's do it. Actually, we can write a European project about it. And so first we, we, we designed a prototype together with a team of PhD students and bachelor students. Um, and then uh, we, we only demonstrated that we could actually first take off, hover at one meter from the takeoff spot, move two meters away and land in another spot. Uh, at the time, uh, the computation was not done on board. Uh, it was done off board using a, a long uh, USB cable that was connecting the onboard camera of the drone to a, a, a laptop, but uh, it was basically the very first. So it was everything. Uh, this was made possible by the advances in uh, visual in visual slam, by also by integration, system integration, of course, because in the end uh, we put together a loosely coupled the Kalman filter that was then. Uh, um, uh, fusing information from uh, the monocular slam with the inertial measurement unit because monocular slam doesn't give you the absolute scale. It tells you how much you move, 
with respect to the first displacement, but it's only relative displacement. So if you need, if you want to have uh, information in the absolute scale, which you need to control the drone, then you need information in meters, position information in meters. So you can only get that from the IMU that measures accelerations in meters per second squared. Right, so if you double integrate acceleration, then you get the position, but it's of course drifted compared to the vision. Now, if you fuse this information with the vision, then you get both the absolute scale and you correct also the drift of the IMU. Uh, phenomenal, uh, fantastic. Uh, just a curiosity before we move on, and that would be uh, related to the implementation actually. So when you say we built up a prototype and uh, we demonstrated that we could actually move for one minute, how much time does it actually take normally or uh, and how many people or what sort of expertise uh, is needed? So at the beginning, uh, we basically um, uh, we had a different bachelor and master thesis focusing on different things because it was the first time that they were actually addressing this problem. So one investigated, uh, one person investigated, for example, the uh, uh, Kalman filter based sensor fusion between the camera and the MU. Another investigated, for example, the target detection for high precision takeoff and landing. Um, and then another one also looked at other aspects, especially the integration on the quadrotor, um, the ROS implementation. ROS was the, the uh, robotic operating system, which uh, had just come out, by the way, oh, wow. and there were also a lot of issues. Then there was another uh, student that was actually dedicated to the hardware itself. Uh, so quadcopter drones became, started to become a thing only in 2007. I saw my first uh, quadcopter flight in person at uh, RSS, Robotic Science and Systems, which was a conference at the time that took place in uh, Rome. And uh, a German company called Ascenti Technologies was demonstrating that in front of all the audience. Uh, then, actually, that was the first company we asked uh, to be our partner in the European project S-Fly. So, you see, all the pieces of the puzzle then, uh, then uh, now make sense. The, all these people then uh, became part of the, the same team. Uh, but so it was everything. So it was a team of uh, five people. Okay, so definitely, I mean, definitely you need knowledge from all sorts of fields in robotics. That's what makes it so fascinating, at least. That's for correct. Me. We need the expertise in uh, uh, mechanical engineering, uh, control, and electronics engineering and computer vision. It's a uh, huge. <laughs> okay, so um, now I'm imagining yourself uh, when you actually successfully demonstrate uh, autonomous flying with, uh, the, which is just vision based. Uh, uh, what was the next step for you? After we demonstrated the first uh, vision based autonomous flight, uh, the next step was actually to make drones fly rather than just. Uh, navigate in near hover conditions. So the first observation that I made was that these drones, these autonomous drones, so were not navigating like human pilots would actually fly them. They were basically, for me, levitating. That's another comparison to magic. There okay. is a difference between flying and levitation, which David Copperfield made very clear in 1993 when he, first, when he made the first uh, flight on stage. So you see, when uh, um, drones were flying autonomously, they were flying uh, straight line trajectories or waypoint, from waypoint to waypoint in straight line. But that is very different from the way that humans fly drones. Uh, we fly smooth trajectories when we fly drones. Um, uh, doesn't have to be acrobatic maneuvers, but we just fly, you know, um, uh, very, very smoothly. In, uh, by, uh, by contrast, the drones were basically navigating as clumsy robots. They were basically moving, you know, straight lines. So 
how could we make that step? To make that step that now we call agile flight, basically we needed to advance in perception, planning and control. Because if you want to navigate faster, more agilely, then obviously you need to perceive faster and you need to think faster. So you need the advancements in both ways. So perception, planning and control side. So that's when we started also to move away, for example, on the control side from PAD to model predictive controllers. And then when we started to move uh, also away from uh, SLAM-based only navigation, which nowadays we only call uh, vision-based state estimation, to perception-aware planning and control, mm -hmm. because you also need to take into account where you are looking at in order to facilitate the perception task, which you are using for state estimation after all. And you must do that without thinking. We learned that. Uh, this is super interesting. Skill. It's uh, something that I would like to dig into. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe just before uh, we do that, uh, I'd like to understand what are the actual control techniques that are mostly used in uh, drone navigation? Because my question would be, if uh, drones before were just levitating, could have been just a, a problem of the control plan and control part, or was it also a problem of something else? It was also a problem of the control part, uh, using PID controllers. So another leap forward that we made was to adopt uh, MPC. Uh, of course, uh, coming uh, from ETH, uh, we were uh, first exposed uh, you know, by the, the course of uh, Manfred Morarid and uh, his legacy. So it was an easy choice. Um, so we actually started using MPC, I think, in 2016. That's when we moved away from PID, and that's when we started to observe a, a quick change in the, in the navigation uh, and the maneuvering of our drones. Um, but the problem with MPC is that you have to solve basically planning and control simultaneously, and you want to do this on board while you are controlling the drone. So typically we will control drones at 50 hertz, which we still do today, by the way. I mean, sending the, the high level commands at 50 hertz, then the low level commands are sent much faster, although we're at kilohertz. But so that means that you needed to solve this optimization fast. And that's where actually we started to explore the world of uh, CADOS and Professor Moritz Dill at the University of, uh, of Freiburg, which uh, implemented the solvers that are super, super efficient, and they implement MPC in real time thanks to so-called real-time iteration that basically solves the optimization um, while the controller is already executing the trajectory. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, super interesting. Um, so basically, this is essentially what leads you towards the path of agile flying, uh, yes. finally. And I see that, um, I mean, you've, you've been doing amazing work in all directions about uh, uh, robot acrobatics, uh, robots that navigate in the wild, and robots that compete with uh, actual humans in uh, drone racing. Uh, this has actually made the cover of Nature uh, very recently this year. Um, is there anything that you would like to talk about now? I think it would be nice maybe to talk about uh, drone racing in this respect, uh, because it's uh, definitely fascinating. Yes, I would like to talk about drone racing because many people ask me why drone racing and how do you think that drone racing research will transfer to real-world applications? Because let's be honest, drone racing is just a game. Eventually, we want drones that can be used for the good in many civilian applications, from delivery to inspection tasks, search and rescue, and so on. And so why drone racing? I would like to actually start with that. So let's start with an observation. Um, the battery of a multi-copter drone 
usually lasts for about half an hour. If you use a fixed wind drones, then it's a different thing. You know, you also you have the lift, and then you know the drone can fly much longer. But it's a different story. So now let's talk about multi-copter drones. Only half an hour battery life. So. Uh, of course, there are advancements that are being made there on fuel cells and the lithium sulfur cells, uh, batteries that will actually be used uh, in the near future. But uh, there is another thing where we can advance, uh, which is actually to make drones uh, fly faster, because a drone that flies faster can fly farther. Um, of course, if you fly too fast, also you start drawing more energy from the battery. You also start encountering more air drag, which also starts to actually slow down your drone. And so it's no longer convenient to fly that fast. But we have a study that actually computes uh, uh, basically the, the, the distance that you can fly a multicopter drone with a given battery, with a given mass, with given aerodynamics, given propellers, given motors as a function of the battery, and you can compute how far the drone can actually fly before the battery completely dies. And what we observed is that it's a parabola that basically has an apex. So that means, uh, what, what, what is this parabola? This is basically the trend, so the plot that shows how the uh, range in kilometers um, uh, changes as a function of the flight speed in meters per second. And what we observe is that there exists an optimal speed for every drone. Given a drone, you can compute an optimal speed for a given trajectory. For example, for a DJI Mavic drone, we computed that the uh, maximum distance you can reach before the drone battery is completely de depleted is 3.5 kilometers. If you fly any faster than uh, Sorry, it's 3.5 kilometers, and you reach this optimal speed at 6 meters per second. But if you fly any faster, it's no longer convenient to fly uh, that fast because actually then you reach uh, lower distances. So how do we go from here to drone racing? Now, if you look at the current uh, um, landscape of commercial drones, none of them flies drones at the optimal speed. So now I'm thinking of uh, DJI drones, Skydio drones, flyability drones. These are some of the world leaders in inspection tasks in where they are leaders. And so actually they fly at speeds that range from half a meter per second to no more than 1.2 meters per second. Why? Um, because if you fly too fast, you start experiencing motion blur, and you also need to think faster, so you need to have a fast algorithm, so you need to react faster and so on. So there are many issues that have to do with motion blur, robustness and safety, which are actually very, very strong issues. But from a research point of view, basically our study tells us that one day, whether this happens in 5, 10 years or 20 years, we will have drones that will fly all this, for all these tasks at the optimal speed in order to maximize their utility, their productivity. So we need to push that. And from this, how can we actually push research to work on agile flight? So we thought about it and we came up with a competition, with a game to basically um, incentivize researchers to push the boundaries on vision-based navigation. That's where the idea of drone racing came up. Coincidentally, uh, at IROS, which is the International Conference on the Robotics and Intelligence Systems, in 2016, uh, um, 
Professor Yunpil Moon uh, from South Korea started to organize uh, a series of drone racing, autonomous drone racing competitions that took place uh, from 2016 until before COVID in 2019. And we also started participating in there. And we actually realized that uh, it was very, very, very difficult. If you think about it, 2009, uh, uh, when we, uh, sorry, in 2016, when we participated, uh, sorry, 2017, when we participated in the first IROS drone racing competition, we were flying at three kilometers per hour. Um, no, not even, one sorry, one kilometers per hour. The year later in Madrid, Iros Madrid, we uh, raised and we won the competition of flying at three kilometers per hour. In 2019, we participated uh, in the Alpha Pilot competition organized by the Drone Racing League. By the way, all these competitions were between autonomous uh, drones only. There was no human against machine. And in, at the Alpha Pilot competition in 2019, we could fly at 30 kilometers per hour. But then, it became clear that the next step should be, you know, we should really try to challenge humans, but not whatever human, ideally the world champions. And that's where actually the whole, uh, the whole uh, challenge started. So since 2019, we have been pushing very, very, very hard to achieve this goal. And so that was also thanks to uh, the European Research Council who gave me the generous grant of 2 million euros uh, as a consolidator grant to focus on this. And one of the milestones was indeed uh, beating the world champions of drone racing. And we definitely want to dig into this more because it's a fascinating story. Uh, I was just thinking that it's a, it was very convenient almost that um, drone racing is by itself a sport already, which exists uh, already. And it's basically a televised sport where competitors are flying at high speed aircrafts in a 3D circuit. Um, yeah, so in, in my mind, I have these milestones. So in 1996, there's a, a Deep Blue versus Gary Kasparov. Uh, then in 2016, we have the Google DeepMind challenge uh, between uh, Go players. And now in 2023, we see Alpha Pilot defying uh, humans in flying drones. So Not Alpha Pilot, but Swift. We call our algorithm Swift. Swift, okay. Mm -hmm. um, so can you tell us a bit uh, about this, how this story unfolded? Yes. So in 2019, basically, after participating in the Alpha Pilot competition uh, organized by the Drone Racing League, basically, we, uh, we basically reflected on the lessons learned from this competition. So there, our maximum speed, as I said, was 30 kilometers per hour. And we said, OK, how can we improve that? So we need to improve at every level in perception, planning and control. And so we started working on uh, classic optimal control algorithms uh, and at the same time also to improve our vision, visual inertia state estimation based on visual inertia slam. So uh, single camera plus as IMU, Inertial Measurement Unit. So first of all, let me talk a bit about the state estimation part. Um, there actually, there was uh, until 2017, one of the biggest core researches of uh, on my lab to improve the state estimation, but we were not that flying at, until that time that fast. It was then in 2019, we started to actually observe uh, the deficiencies of a visual inertial slam at high speed. Why? Because at those speeds, actually you have motion blur. And that's where visual slam actually uh, fails because because of motion blur, you can lose the, uh, the features that you need to, to estimate your motion. Uh, also, the IMU, uh, especially gyroscopes experience uh, quite a large drift, not much the accelerometers because actually at high accelerations, they have a high uh, um, uh, signal-to-noise ratio, but actually the gyroscopes drift there. So you have these problems, and uh, 
what we didn't expect is that the drift of vision inertia state estimation flying at 20 meters per second, so at the speed of human pilots, which was over 80 kilometers per hour, would be 20%. Just to give you a comparison, when um, you fly slowly, up to five, up to one or five meters per second, you experience uh, a drift of uh, no more than one or two percent. That's oh, also what ingenuity huge. experiences on Mars. No one more than two percent. So two meters every 100 meters of traveled distance. But flying at speeds that go over 20 meters per second or 80 kilometers per hour, you experience 20 percent. So 20 percent drift every 100 meters of flown trajectory. There is not much you can do with that. You will bump into the first gate of your racing track. So we had to actually improve on that. On the other side, what we also realized is that we needed uh, better control algorithms. So at that time, we were already working in 2019 on MPC, and we needed to improve uh, to improve that. So we realized that the big challenge was uh, uh, also the path planning. So how do you solve drone racing? Maybe first we can explain drone racing if you want, and then I can Absolutely. tell you what the different challenges sure. are. So in drone racing, you, the goal is to pass through a sequence of gates uh, in a given order in minimum time. You win if you can finish, if you can reach the finish line earlier than all your opponents. And the map is known. And the priori. map is known in advance. That's okay. very, very important, actually, that you bring it up because human pilots are disclosed the map uh, already weeks before the competition. Okay. Not only, but they can actually access the racing track for several days. And uh, leagues like the Drone Racing League even provides a CAD file to the oh. competitors. Yes, because they can actually practice using the, uh, the Drone Racing League simulator, which is a quite realistic simulator, including aerodynamic effects. So they get a CAD file that they can import and then fly as if they were flying in the real world. And then they get some practice time with the real drone. It's literally like in Formula One. I mean, I don't know whether they do practice as well. They probably do practice do. also on simula uh, simulators, and they also have some practice tests uh, on the Correct. actual circuit. Correct. Indeed, the Drone Racing League Simulator is also used by the Drone Racing League to recruit uh, pilots, by the way. <laughs> and there are also other simulators like Liftoff. And we started the collaboration also with Liftoff, by the way. Um, so basically, um, how do you solve drone racing? So since you know the map a priori, well, all the uh, technological uh, pieces are actually already there. So we can basically plan a trajectory the, from the start to the finish in minimum time. Sure. And we realized that actually at the time we started working on this topic, which was in 2019-20, there was no algorithm that could solve this using the full quadrotor dynamical model. There were only algorithms that would approximate the, the trajectory with polynomials mm -hmm. using the full quadrotor models, but poly polynomials are by definition suboptimals because, for example, they do not allow you to do bang-bang control, which is often what human pilots do. Yeah. And the other thing is, and they are smooth by default, that's a problem. And the other thing, or there was another set of algorithms that would assume that basically the drone is a point mass model, which is, which is also thing. another big approximation. Mm -hmm. So then uh, my, uh, at that time, PhD student, Philip Fern, who is now at Skydio, developed the first algorithm that can uh, generate, uh, compute uh, numerically, uh, a time-optimal trajectory passing through a series of waypoints in minimum time using the full quadrotor model. Um, and so we can do it. 
And uh, we got super excited about it because this trajectory obviously is superhuman. <laughs> Only machine can potentially fly this trajectory okay. or, okay. or not. And that's where also things became very, very interesting. So, um, so we, by the way, how long does the, this, the, the, the optimizer take to compute this trajectory considering all the, the quadrotor um, dynamical uh, model? Well, actually it takes uh, up to one hour, sometimes even more than an hour, up to three hours, depending on the number of gates, Okay. by the way. So anyway, once you compute it in principle, if you fly it, you will be superhuman. But that's where things started to crack. How do you execute this time optimal trajectory? Because now you have a reference and you want to use it basically. Correct. That is the reference trajectory. But that assumes that you have a perfect state estimator that allows you to be on the trajectory, on the reference trajectory. But the moment you drift off the reference trajectory, you will need to recompute the time optimal trajectory. Mm -hmm. And notice that in drone racing, and that's why it's so fascinating, every centimeter matters. It can determine the win or the loss of the, the race. So you need to be really careful. So if you are off by a few centimeters from the time optimal trajectory, in principle, you will want to regenerate a new time optimal trajectory in order to, you know, win against the, the, the human. Because especially I want to anticipate the difference usually in, 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 uh, between the first and second place winners in these competitions is a tenth of a second. So we are talking about 0.1 seconds. So every centimeter You're makes making a difference. making my job very easy because that would have been my next question. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, then let's, we said, okay, let's try to see what we can do if we have a perfect or near perfect estimation from an external motion capture system. So first of all, we had to build an arena to allow this uh, safe maneuvering at high speeds. So we rented, uh, we, we, it took us many months to find a, a large enough space in Zurich. We found it near uh, the airport uh, of Dubendorf. It's a hangar and there we set up, and we actually we first bought <laughs> an expensive motion capture system uh, consisting of 36 uh, cameras from the company Vicon. We installed them, we calibrated them. Um, and we use this, uh, this uh, external sensor system to basically estimate the state of the drone, including position, velocity, and attitude, which was coming, by the way, at 400 times a second, okay? More than you can possibly do with onboard vision state estimation, by the way. Mm -hmm. And uh, we observed that um, actually tracking this trajectory was not uh, easy because, because of turbulences, because our minimum time trajectory planner was yes considering the full quadrotor dynamical model but it was not considering for example aerodynamic effects which are very difficult to estimate and also it was not taking into account that there was a model mismatch between the model used in the simulator to compute the time optimal trajectory and the real quadrotor yes, yes of course you can do system id but remember again here, every centimeter, every model mismatch can determine the win, the victory, or the loss of the race. Yeah. We are talking about tens of a second. So you want to be super, super sure. You want to do super perfect system ID at the level of Formula One. Everything matters. So that's when actually we realized that uh, because of these model mismatches, we could not fly the time optimal trajectory because in the real world, it would have been a different time optimal trajectory. Okay. And then uh, we also started to realize that turbulences uh, were actually causing drifts by even tens, uh, uh, 10 centimeters. So we started to realize that we needed to replan this time optimal trajectory. 
but we couldn't wait three hours. So that's when my other PhD student, uh, who then started that in 2021, uh, Angel uh, Romero, and he started working on replanning using MPCC. So the idea was to add a contouring term to model predictive control. So in model predictive control, typically you try to minimize uh, uh, the error with respect to a time reference trajectory. So in MPC, basically you want, you tell the MPC that you want to be at this X, Y, Z point at this given time. But that was actually a problem. That was a limitation, it was not an advantage. Because when you fly, when you want to fly fast, yes, you want to follow your uh, time optimal trajectory loosely, but at the same time, you want to maximize the progress along this line. Very much like Formula One pilots do. They try to maximize their progress along the center line. So that's where the MPCC came in, because we added the contouring term. So we are no longer tracking a time trajectory, but we are tracking a path now. Basically a path of X, Y, Z points. Okay. okay? We don't tell anymore we want to be at that specific time, at that specific point. We want to track Stay basically as close as possible. Uh, as possible to a reference path, mm -hmm. but you can optimize a change, adapt the time in order to maximize the progress along this path. So MPCC actually uh, was doing that. And, uh, but the problem with MPCC is that you still require a reference trajectory. Mm -hmm. And remember this reference trajectory took up to three hours. Of course, if you don't change the gates and anything, in principle, you can stay with that. But what if you want to change things and so on? So Angel then started wondering, how actually is the MPCC performance depending on this reference trajectory? What happens if instead of using a reference trajectory, I use just a straight line trajectory between the, the centers of the gates? Mm. And surprise, surprise, actually, the result wasn't too different than when using the time optimal trajectory. So he made a time, uh, a time optimal replanner algorithm that uses MPCC to basically minimize okay. the time to the goal. Okay. But now this one can be replanned in less than two milliseconds. So we went from three hours to less than two milliseconds happening on board. Okay. So we were super excited. So we, we started testing, integrating everything on the system. Remember, we were still using the motion capture. It was 2021. We invited the world-class experts, but not the world champions. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make the, the underlander score here, the difference. We invited world-class experts from Switzerland. Yep. Um, they came um, and uh, they competed against uh, our autonomous drone that was actually actually not fully autonomous. It was actually relying on external on the external motion capture system for estimation, but nevertheless, the algorithms were basically running in real time. And uh, we beat uh, these uh, two uh, basically Swiss uh, world-class uh, experts, uh, and we were super excited. Uh, we published a paper in Science Robotics and Robotics and Automation Letters and so on. But it was still relying on a motion capture system. Uh, but then we also started a collaboration with the uh, uh, Drone Racing League uh, former champion, Gabriel Kocher, okay. who originally Swiss, uh, was actually at that time working for the Drone Racing League, um, and so he came from the US, and uh, he flew the same tr racing track as the other uh, world-class pilots from Switzerland, and we realized that actually, even using motion capture, actually, and with M our MPCC, the performance was behind this guy. Oh my God. So, we observed two things. First of all, not every world-class pilot is the same. Would you really want to race against the best pilots? Second of all, why can't we be beat this superhuman? We can't, why can't we be superhuman, even using motion capture? The problem 
we didn't know it at that time, was actually this reliance on the reference trajectory. Now we know it after three years, but we, before we didn't know it. So, and that's the problem that we encountered with optimal control. In optimal control, basically, uh, you are relying on this decomposition of the problem into planning and control. But basically what you're doing is that this decomposition biases, uh, finally, the range of behaviors that you can actually uh, do in order to, ex to, to control the drone. And that's where uh, reinforcement learning shines, because uh, basically it, it's able to discover trajectories without being biased by a reference trajectory. And it does so by trial and error. Mm -hmm. Also, we found out that reinforcement learning becomes more robust to variations, degradations, actually, of the state estimate, thanks to domain randomization. Okay. So let's try to recap the, the findings until then. We were able to replan time optimal trajectory super fast at two milliseconds time, but we were still relying on external motion capture-based state estimation, and we could still not beat a, 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 the be one of the best world-class pilots like Gabriel Kocher. So we needed to improve on two things, better controllers, but also do not, do not cheat. We should not rely on motion capture. We should rely on onboard vision-based estimation like humans do. Humans yeah. fly vision-based with a single camera. So we started uh, so then uh, reworking on our vision-based estimator. And then we realized that, uh, okay, that besides, there was this problem I mentioned before, that uh, there is a drift of 20%. Oh my God, how can we overcome this problem? Well, there is uh, uh, something we could use, which is uh, that you know the map of the gates. You know perfectly where they are. Let's say with centimeter or 10 centimeters accuracy typically. Because you, like, you, can, you, put, you install them by hand and you have to try to measure them by hand. So usually you make an error of 10 centimeters. So, but what you can do is to exploit a class of algorithms called the PNP, perspective on from endpoints is a class of computer vision algorithms that belongs to the class of photogram photogrammetry that allow you to compute to triangulate the position and orientation of the camera from at least four points in space. Okay. So if you ensure that the drone always observes at least a gate with four corners, you can always estimate the position of the drone. If you can detect more than one gate, then even better. So we, we integrated that and we use a common filter to fuse the information coming from the vision inertial odometry, vision inertial slab, plus the information coming from this PMP algorithm that was estimating its position also from the gates. So the vision inertial odometry is relying also on na natural features in the environment, like from the ceiling, from the floor, people laying around, so whatever, natural landmarks. And the common filter fuses this information. What we observed, though, is that uh, there was still an error, of course, and the error actually ranges between half a meter and two meters for wow. state estimation. Okay. I, I mean, again, in a competition where every centimeter matters, well, that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big problem. Um, so we needed to, to find something around that, and we also realized that there were still uh, aerodynamic uh, effects and turbulences mm -hmm. that we were not taking into account. Motor-to-motor motor, motor -motor interactions, and also uh, turbulent flow that, was that is caused because you are at that speed, you are flying in your own downwash. So basically the propellers emit uh, air, 
moving down and you're flying into the air mm. and you basically create vortices. We have a beautiful picture that we took by uh, putting some smoke and flying the drone and then uh, flashing a light at that specific moment. You beautifully see all these vortices being created. Okay. The only way to model these effects is to use sophisticated computation of dynamic simulators. But the problem is that they take several hours of compute and they are trajectory dependent. Yeah, so Every time you fly a lap, you fly different trajectories. No way you can do this in real time. That's when we also started to look at neural networks to model these effects. So we, we were actually moving in different ways. So the project scaled up to, you know, 10 people, <laughs> 10 people looking at different problems. Um, so how did we solve the whole problem? Maybe I should uh, cut short on that. So nowadays, our controller is no longer an optimal controller like MPCC, but actually it's a neural network. We use a two-layer, multi-layer perceptron. Okay. Um, and this controller is trained with reinforcement learning in simulation mm -hmm. and is then fine-tuned offline with data collected in the real world with motion capture systems. After the fine tuning, we are ready to deploy the entire system onto the real world on a real drone using only onboard sensors. And we can fly at superhuman speed and beat the world champions by half a second. So 0.5 seconds. How did we do that? And why, did, why does it work? So now uh, let's go to the finding. Um, I mentioned this uh, large error estimation that comes uh, out uh, from uh, the vision, state estimation, vision initial state estimation, that ranges between half a meter and two meters. Uh, then, so at simulation time, we inject Gaussian noise into the state. So we have built our own sim drone, drone racing simulator and we fly in simulation our drone at the speed at which is supposed to fly in the real world for that specific track. At the beginning, when we start training the reinforcement learning, the, the drone doesn't know how to fly either, by the way. So we are starting to uh, learn from scratch. Uh, by the way, we use a model-free reinforcement learning. Okay, Only the simulator knows the model, okay? okay? But it's not used by the, the neural network controller. Okay. But the simulator knows the model, okay? Um, but remember, it's the model that we capture from system ID. So there are still model mismatches, and I'll come to that later. Sure. So in simulation, basically, you observe uh, that the drone at the beginning has, makes uh, some crazy behavior. Most of the times, it just uh, flips over and it crashes onto the soil. And it does this for many, many, many times. So actually, the simulator takes uh, about uh, 200,000 iterations where uh, we simulate 100 drones uh, in parallel placed randomly along the racing track that try different things. And uh, the um, reinforcement learning agent is trying to maximize a certain reward function that consists of different terms. These are very important because as many reinforcement learning people know, designing a reward function today is an art. <laughs> and that's where actually most of the programming skills are now when you use RL. So one term of the, re of the reward function is uh, um, that you want to, of course, uh, maximize the progress towards the finish line. As simple as that. Very sparse objective. Okay. The second uh, term is uh, penalize crashes uh, with gates and with the environment. The other term is... Um, uh, enforcing or making sure that they, um, rewarding trajectories that are smooth. 
and the fourth term. And that's super important. And that allows us to actually um, find a solution that is flyable within 50 minutes is what we call the perception aware term. That's what we haven't talked about. So far we're talking about state estimation, planning, but there is another aspect that actually plays a very important role in all flying drones at high speeds, which is perception awareness. Mm -hmm. So everything makes sense when you fly vision-based if you can make sure that your state estimation is always reliable. But if you fly that fast, state estimation, uh, state estimation is no longer reliable because you're going to be subject to motion blur. How do you avoid motion blur? Well, certainly not by increasing the frame rate, because by increasing the frame rate, what you do is that the images become darker and darker, because to increase the frame rate, you have to reduce the exposure time. So less light comes to the lens, so the images become darker, and you don't see much. There is a fundamental limitation. There is a fundamental limitation there. So, um, but what can you do? Well, you can fly trajectories that reduce motion blur. We call them perception-aware trajectories. Uh, how do humans fly? Uh, we started the collaboration with humans and neuroscience study, uh, and we discovered that humans fly and they try to keep uh, often the center of the gate into the center of the image. Why? Because this way, that's the way images are sharp. You don't look away. Mm -hmm. You try to keep the, 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 the gate in the center of the image for two reasons. On one side, because you need to pass through the gate, but also because you want to ensure that the images are as sharp as possible. And is there any time where the human also looks at other gates? Indeed, that's what you observe. Humans are not just looking at the next uh, one gate, but they, they, they look ahead in a receding horizon up to two or three gates. Okay. They, they try to do some receding horizon planning. Okay. While machines are much better because <laughs> they can actually plan globally, right? But anyway, so yes, we added the perception aware term where basically we ask the RL agent to try to keep uh, um, the angle of viewing on the camera with respect to the center of the gate as close as possible. Mm -hmm. But he will the RL agent will find out when how close it, the, how small this angle should be because actually it's state dependent. Mm -hmm. yeah. You cannot uh, really enforce it uh, you know, in the, in globally. It is state dependent. Uh, and then uh, it's beautiful to see that basically it learns a policy that is perception aware and it tries to uh, basically uh, pass all, through all the gates in minimum time. But remember that there are still some inconsistencies because the RL agent is trained in simulation and simulation doesn't capture all the non-idealities and idiosyncrasies of the real world. Ha. And that's where now another universe opens. What are these idiosyncrasies of the real world? So state estimation is uh, um, inaccurate for different reasons. It's not just Gaussian noise. There are systematic errors. So the drone has the camera and IMU on a different frame than the propeller frame. This is done to avoid that vibrations from the propellers are transferred into the cameras, making the images look, uh, you know, uh, yeah. weird. And also causing, uh, uh, you know, vibrations into the accelerometer that could disturb the estimation. So in order to alleviate that uh, uh, vibration transfer, we use dampers 
between the camera frame and the propeller frame. Okay. But dampers basically deform subject to the accelerations that the drone is subject to. How much are the accelerations that the drone is subject to when flying at speed, at this acceleration? Up to 5Gs. At 5Gs, uh, basically what you observe is that these dampers deform by up to one centimeter. How much does a one centimeter displacement in the camera frame with respect to the body frame uh, induces on the, on this estimation? Up to one meter error of additional, one. up to one meter of additional systematic error that you cannot predict. It is state dependent, trajectory dependent, mm -hmm. and viewing direction dependent. Yeah. Oof. So many things to take into account that are very difficult to put into, you know, our simulator. Very, very difficult. So what do we do? When we fly the policy for the first time in the real world, the same policy that was trained for the first time in simulation, it flies in the motion capture. Uh, so using perf near perfect estimation. And we do this to basically capture um, residual effects that we cannot capture in simulation, which are the degradation of the state estimate mm -hmm. and uh, aerodynamic effects, this turbulent flow. Okay. When we fly for the first time the policy training simulation in the real world, basically, and we are using motion capture, what we do is that we measure the discrepancy between the ground truth executed trajectory mm -hmm. and the desired trajectory according to our internal model of the simulator. Okay. And yeah. then we use a Gaussian process to model this. Effects, wow. both the residual of the estimation and residual of the aerodynamics. And okay. when do we do? We go back to sim into the simulation. We add this residual okay. that were captured by flying only three laps in the real world. Of course, they are only for that specific racing track. Okay. We fine tune the policy in simulation, starting from where this, the simulation had finished for the, for the first uh, iteration. And after a few minutes, we are done. It converges. Then we go back to the real world. Now we can finally fly the policy in the real world. And that's when we beat the human. Fantastic. Uh, amazing. So what we are doing is sim to real to sim to real. So the two key enablers of beating uh, world champions in drone racing using onboard vision-based uh, sensors well, is two things. The realization that RL is better than optimal control in pushing quadrotos at the limits. This is a paper that actually was published uh, two days ago in Science Robotics. And the other thing is uh, that um, um, you need this additional step of data collection in the real world in order to improve your simulator with the residuals that, you, that the simulator otherwise cannot capture. And uh, I'm afraid we have to do this when you want to push robots at the limits. So I speculate that the conclusions of this paper will also apply for car racing competitions, autonomous car racing competitions. To other robotic platforms, yes, essentially. Absolutely. So, and what I can extrapolate also from what you say is that basically a colossal problem is robustness, uh, as you say. And uh, as a control theorist, we're always biased towards uh, model-based uh, uh, policies. So how do you envision, you know, guaranteeing, for example, safety in the future? Uh, this is a classic control theorist uh, uh, question. I love this question. And in fact, <laughs> it's a point I haven't touched uh, yet uh, for a reason. Well, okay, now maybe we can make a step back. So the fact sure. that our AI pilot uh, beat the world champions in a, f in a fair race, 
you know, using onboard sensors and uh, the same, uh, by the way, the same camera that humans were using, by the way. Uh, does it mean that the game is over? Absolutely not. So what are uh, the, the limitations? Well, why does it win? Uh, because our machine obviously doesn't have a notion of risk and safety. <laughs> so it basically shoots for the target, meaning okay. it wants to reach the finish line, you know, in minimum time. It doesn't want to be robust. Robustness is certainly not taken into account here. Um, um, but that's where humans actually shine. They want to fly cautiously uh, most of the times. So at the moment, we don't have a measure of risk. Indeed, you are right. So any little, you know, uh, deviation that the RL or the, the agent makes can cause a crash into the, 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 the gates. And we had a lot of crashes. Still, we report that we won 15 races against 25. So we had more, more wins than the pilot. But remember, we were flying in a controlled environment, mm -hmm. in a hangar which was closed with closed doors and so on. So if you port these outdoors, there are other problems like, uh, again, unmoded aerodynamic effects, uh, turbulences, uh, other things, uh, illumination changes. Oh my God, that is uh, something that also is difficult to take into account. Why? Because remember, our gate detector was trained with uh, uh, the same conditions that you would see then at deployment time. And if those conditions are no longer are violated, then it would also fail there. So there are, uh, there are all, all these things. But about safety, that is a problem. So at the moment, the drone doesn't have a measure of safety and of risk. Um, we started working on that, though. So um, if you had a measure of risk, what could you do? So that's at the moment of question that we tried to answer in a recent ICRA paper this year. So if you had a measure of risk, which we don't have, though, then what you could try to do would be to um, modulate the maximum thrust that the quadrotor can uh, execute in order to limit the, your range of behaviors. So we started working on uh, user-conditioned neural network controllers. What does it mean? The problem with the standard neural network controllers is that they are monolithic. That means once you train them, they are trained for that specific platform, for that specific task in that specific environment. Yes. But what if you could add a user input that tells you adapt please the neural network behavior for this specific input that can be task dependent platform dependent environment dependent mm -hmm. well the computer vision community has been doing this for a while conditioning and the neural network behavior based on images and the interesting thing is that the, the user input is an image so we are talking about more than 300,000 you know values so what we started doing is conditioning a neural network controller on a continuous uh, input defined by a user. And uh, we were conditioning on two things, uh, the thrust to weight ratio of the drone, which can basically limit the maximum acceleration the drone can achieve and therefore a maximum speed and range of behaviors, but also the viewing direction of the camera. You can condition also this in order to be more perception aware or less perception aware too. And we found that this actually leads to behaviors that can be made safer, provided that you have a measure of risk, which we don't have yet. But that's something that we are also looking at. So is it conceivable in the future to have uh, in your uh, reinforcement learning policy also rewards that take into account the risk essentially? So Yes, absolutely. There are also these things. Um, uh, we are already working on this. Um, I can anticipate that there is also adversarial learning where also you try to 
learn an adversarial behavior that tries to modify the environment by perturbing the gates and other effects like turbulence and so on in order to um, allow the RL ego agent to discover behaviors that potentially are more robust when deployed in the real world. Tesla has been doing this for a while, mm -hmm. for example. And the other question that I had was uh, regarding your comment on illumination. So for now, you've been racing um, inside the hangar, as you mentioned, but is it conceivable to see these races appearing now in the wild? Imagine having these gates in a, in a forest, for example. It is conceivable, but I cannot tell you when it's going uh -huh. to happen. Is it going to be in five years, in 10 years, 20 years? Why? So first of all, our gates were square for a reason, to facilitate the perception task detection and uh, uh, and gate-based pose estimation using this PNP class of algorithms. Now, in uh, many competitions, they don't use uh, square gates, but they use uh, soft gates huh. that are basically made, they look like flags sometimes and so on. So it's difficult to use geometry-based computer vision algorithms for pose estimation because the appearance of the gate can change under wind. Then another thing is, uh, well, outdoors, uh, wind gusts. We are also now trying to address that, by the way. Uh, we, we, uh, we can talk about it if you want. And then there is another problem, which is illumination effects. This is actually one of the biggest problems of uh, computer vision that uh, prevents, uh, you, know, uh, you know, also deployment of uh, autonomous self-driving self cars because illumination conditions vary a lot between different times of the day and different times of the year. They have to do with the fact that um, Okay, again, there is always a, some parasitic uh, blur effect residual because in the end, remember, you are trying to reduce the blur in the direction of viewing, but not in the periphery of the image. So depending on which features you need to localize, maybe also those features are important for localization, but actually they are blurred. So maybe you may want to fly a different trajectory. Another thing is illumination conditions. So it can change, the, the light can, can dim during the day. Um, clouds can pass by, also the sunlight can appear in the field of view of the camera, which can cause a saturation of the image. So then the out-exposure controller of the, the camera will try to compensate for that by reducing the exposure time or opening the or uh, uh, widening the exposure time. That can cause overexposure or underexposure of, the, of some zones on the image. That can cause the lo loss of feature tracks. <laughs> How do you take this into account? Hey, that's where now we are seeing a lot of leap forwards uh, with the deep visual inertia slam algorithms, where they try to learn directly the trajectory from uh, it, the images, from raw image pixels end to end. But they're being trained in a self-supervised fashion using geometric approaches still. So, you know, there is still a, a reliance on, on geometry for that. That means that it would be difficult for them to scale in unseen conditions, so to extrapolate to unseen conditions. So, again, there is a lot of things that we can learn from humans. Other things uh, we may want to point out, I mean, uh, uh, human piloted drones have an IMU. Um, so like our drone, by the way, the AI drone and the human piloted drone of the world champions was the identical. But humans are not using the IMU consciously. The IMU is only used by the low-level controller, sure. which is the same as our AI pilot uh, low-level controller. But in our case, also the high-level controller, the one that does a visual inertia slam, uses the IMU. 
So it uses it explicitly. So what we are also looking at is uh, trying to navigate fly in the way that humans, human pilots navigate by just looking at Purely images. From vision. So one day, what I hope, that will be a dream that we can do, is that we participate in a competition. We don't tell them that we have an AI pilot. We just take the goggles, we connect them to a computer, computer receives images like any other human pilots and then the AI navigates by the way also using a, like you know similar to a joypad but now controlled by the algorithm uh, the, uh, the autonomous drone that would be the dream okay that kind of would be the ultimate test. milestone this is the Turing test for flying That's which right. we could coin today as the Scaramuzza test <laughs> <laughs> if you want <laughs> uh, one thing that I would like to talk about maybe before closing the episode concerns vision again uh, you are uh, world expert also on uh, uh, event-based cameras. And I, if possible, I would like to touch on this topic as well. Sure. So uh, what is an event-based camera? An event-based camera is a camera that has uh, uh, smart pixels because uh, this camera um, responds only to motion. That means that uh, there is no output if nothing moves in front of the camera or there is no relative motion, to be more, more clear. So how does it work? It's a, it looks like a standard camera with a CMOS sensor or with a lens, but the output looks very different. Why? Because its pixels are smart and independent of one another. Behind each pixel, there is a microchip that monitors the scene. And whenever a single pixel detects relative motion by basically detecting changes of intensity, possibly caused by motion or blinking pattern, then that pixel triggers an event. That's why it's called an event camera. Hey, look, there was something here. Something happened. Something moved according to my pixel position. Now, the nice thing is that these pixels uh, trigger events with microsecond resolution. That means we are talking about potential update rates of megahertz which can open up a lot of interesting scenarios for control, like high bandwidth control, high update rate control. Why is this important for robotics and control? Why? Well, and why for drones and why for cars? Because that's where actually these event cameras are actually used now a lot. Because event cameras, thanks to this working principle, which we can call differential, because they do not accumulate photons over time, but rather they monitor the scene and they tell you when there was a change of intensity. So they work in differential mode. They avoid accumulating light over time. So there are four key advantages. First of all, a, a latency with microsecond resolution. Second of all, because they work in differential mode, they have a very high dynamic range. That is eight orders of magnitude superior to the standard event cameras. Third, they have a low power consumption because they only react to, to when there is motion. If there is no motion, which is typically a scene, then they mostly don't trigger anything. So mostly the camera is in idle mode. So on average, this camera consumes between 1 and 10 milliwatts, which is uh, between 100 and 1000 times less than a standard camera. And the fourth thing is um, that it has, negligible, it has negligible motion blur. Because again, it works in differential mode. So there is almost no motion blur. So what are the key advantages for robotics? Well, it can in principle allow low latency, high bandwidth control. Let's think of an easy scenario. Uh, a pedestrian jumping on the highway, which we know it caused 
the death of a person in Pittsburgh getting by an Uber car some years ago. Um, these are events that are unlikely to happen, but they can happen. Of course, there is not much that you can do in such a short amount of time, but you can try to mitigate this and maybe also uh, use an event camera as uh, a triggerer uh, to have better and more robust detections more and take more informed decisions. Why? If you think of uh, um, one of the leading uh, um, advanced driving assistance systems, and now I'm thinking of Mobile Eye, which was acquired by Intel a few years back, um, it has a reaction time of 30 milliseconds, 33 milliseconds. But often uh, uh, one frame is not enough to make a decision about whether you should actually trigger the emergency brake of your car. They usually take at least three frames. So we are talking about uh, 100 milliseconds of time. And in 100 milliseconds, a car can move by several meters, depending on how much speed you are, fly, you are, you are driving. Um, now, an event camera can uh, detect a pedestrian in the blind time between two frames with sub-millisecond accuracy. And that's what we published in several papers. So we, we, we can do what we call inter-frame object detection. Not only. Uh, so two situations can happen for pedestrians. That the pedestrian is detected in the blind time between two frames, so only from events, or that a pedestrian was detected from the last frame and you want to keep track of this pedestrian to very quickly um, um, track his her intentions over time. So you can do fusion of RGB information from the last frame plus the events to interpolate, the, to interpolate by the prediction. And now you can do a, not an in, in, interpolation, because typically these interpolations between frames are linear, but now you can do very nice, nice non-linear fitting because the events give you raw data. Yeah. It's like an exteroceptive IMU. An, an IMU is, inter, is a proprioceptive, but an event camera is an exteroceptive sensor. It tells you what happens at megahertz resolution. And so that is beautiful because it can make uh, um, safety critical systems potentially safer. Mm. For drones, we showed it can allow several things. For example, in a paper published in Science Robotics uh, a few years ago, we showed that you can uh, dodge objects thrown at the drone while the drone was flying. So in this video, you would see basically uh, my PhD student, Davide Falanga, throwing a ball at the drone while the drone was actually moving forward and the drone dodges it. And we say in the paper, we show in the paper that you can do this at much higher relative speeds that you can do with a standard camera. Mm -hmm. Why? Because with a standard camera, you have uh, uh, the processing latency, uh, which with a full frame, it can take, you know, quite uh, several tens of milliseconds. And then you need to wait for the next frame to arrive uh, to make a more informed decision. And that frame uh, time can take uh, depend more time depending on the exposure time. And so it can vary a lot. Uh, with an event camera, you can make these decisions within milliseconds or in a sub-millisecond resolution. Many people ask me, but why don't you just use a high frame rate camera? Now, all our mobile phones have at least a 1000 frames per second camera. So why are we not doing a high speed camera for that? Because of the so-called bandwidth latency trade-off. Mm -hmm. Because with the standard cameras, in order to reduce the latency, you need a high frame rate. Mm -hmm. But a high frame rate only comes with the cost of sacrificing, at the cost of sacrificing uh, um, bandwidth. Mm -hmm. Because at 1,000 frames per second, each frame contains 300,000 pixels 
pixels. So it's going to be a lot of megabytes of data you need to process. And event camera instead allows you to process events which come with low latency and low bandwidth. Because what is triggering the events is not every part of the scene, but only edges. In fact, when you look at the data of an event camera, it, looked, it looks like an edge image. So only contours of people, pedestrians, cars, and so on. So only the varying visual component of the visual signal is basically filtered by the event camera. Only this is what you see. And you don't see the redundant information of uh, uniform color regions. And that's where basically you, you, you save a lot of bandwidth while keeping the latency down. I have a couple of questions. So maybe just to tie it also to Agile Flying, this is uh, a technology that you also used uh, on the drones that you uh, used to uh, compete against. Uh, uh, no. No. Okay. Exactly. So uh, no, we don't. You we didn't use event cameras to compete against the world mm -hmm. champions in drone racing. Actually, we never used an event camera yet for drone racing. Why? The decision was because well, two reasons. <laughs> the first reason is fairness. Because uh, this sensor uh, is superhuman. Okay. And so humans do, uh, by the way, it's a, it's a sensor that mimics the, work, mimics the works in working principle of the human eye. So in yes. principle, it's a fair sensor, but it's unfair to a drone pilot because the drone pilot is not sitting on the aircraft. Yeah, it doesn't yes, see with its own eyes. It sees uh, through a frame-based camera that is transmitting images yeah, yeah, so it would you be know, in video streaming. Competition. So it wouldn't be fair. Mm -hmm. uh, a second of all, well, these cameras are quite expensive. $5,000 <laughs> for each camera. So if you put one of these and you crash a drone, and by the way, we crashed hundreds of drones <laughs> to succeed in drone racing. So you don't want to definitely lose this camera. But now we are making a lot of strides forwards. Um, we already starting now flying agile with event cameras. And uh, we also built a very accurate simulator of event cameras that simulates also all the non-idealities of the sensor, also thanks to the collaboration with Professor Toby Delbrock, who invented the event camera in 2006 and is still here at the University of Zurich. And um, so we have better simulators. Uh, we started flying agilely, so not just for uh, dodging bolts, but also for making uh, drones safer. For example, us, one thing that has happened a few times around the world is that uh, quadcopters flown commercially uh, had a motor failing for whatever reason. In this case, what happens is that uh, you can still do unstable hovering with 3D propellers, like demonstrated by Raffaello D'Andrea, I think uh, more than 10 years ago, provided that you have accurate position reference from GPS or external sensors. We tried doing that with a standard camera and it works as long as you have a low motion blur. Why? Because when you start uh, uh, losing a motor, then the drone starts spinning on itself like a ballerina because of the principle of conservation of the angular momentum. And then images by standard cameras get motion blur. The motion blur is ideally zero in the center of uh, the rotation, but uh, it's uh, larger as you, you know, uh, at the distance from the center of rotation. So what you observe is that if you run any visual slam algorithm, the features tend to group in the center of the image, yeah. but it's not sufficient to do the estimation. So the drone drifts and crashes. But with an event camera, there is no motion blur. 
And therefore, what you observe, if you look at our video and paper, is that the features are very well distributed, and we can keep track of the state of the drone uh, while the drone spins on itself. And we can not only control the drone while doing unstable hovering, but we can also do unstable trajectory following. That's uh, incredible. Uh, of course, I should mention that there will be links in the description of the ah. episode to all uh, the works that we mentioned so far. There is also an event-based uh, vision survey uh, that you published uh, uh, maybe two or three years ago. Yes. There will be a link to that as well in the description. Uh, maybe before we close this episode, I, I wanted to ask something specific about event-based uh, uh, cameras because um, those sensors essentially output something that is a trajectory in space-time, whereas mm, mostly our control algorithms do not really deal with that. Uh, so do you envision a new class of uh, control algorithms specifically targeted to event-based sensors in the future? It's a very good question. So let's uh, clarify. Event cameras output events. The trajectory of the of objects in space and time is done only via another algorithm, computer vision algorithm. For example, if you want to track a pedestrian in space and time, you need to device a pedestrian detector and tracker for doing that. But so the raw output are just pure events that contain both the target that you want to track and any background motion. Now, the key potential and all, which requires the paradigm shift in control and robotics is the fact that these events are coming asynchronously. But there is already a class of algorithms called event-based control. So in principle, the theory already exists. What the problem is, is that these events are coming with the resolution of microseconds. And it would be beautiful if you have hardware and algorithms that can update the control commands of your platform robot at the resolution of the single events. That's what our brain does, by the way. Yes. At the input, there are spikes. So, uh, so our eyes produce spikes, and those are processed by different ganglion cells and other, other brain cells, and then are converted into an action command to our fingers and so on. But actually, in the input is a spike of, event, of events, a train of spikes, we call it. So we need a revolution on the hardware side and on the algorithmic side. We need hardware that can handle asynchronous events. And we need algorithms that can handle that too, that can therefore are on, on this hardware. There is a class of hardware and algorithms that can already do that. And it's called the spiking neural networks for the algorithm part, and there is a, uh, the neuromorphic chips for the hardware part. And there is a, actually quite a lot of literature as well. It's already more than 20 years of research in spiking networks and spiking chips, and we are like in Zurich to have uh, some of the best uh, expertises. So here I would like to thank uh, Professor Giacomo Indiveri uh, um, that uh, has been working on spiking network and, uh, and neuromorphic chips. So. Uh, just to mention a few ones, for example, the Intel OEHI chips uh, and Spin also Spinnaker, also, um, um, also the, the SPEC uh, from, uh, from Sinsense and others. So they are already hardware devices that can run these uh, spiking networks that are basically a different type of neural networks that works by activation potentials. <laughs> And they can actually uh, be activated asynchronously depending on which pixel was activated. Mm -hmm. um, 
not only are they activated when uh, the, the potential reaches a threshold, but also when a certain number of uh, spikes uh, you know, enters uh, into the membrane potential. So there are, there are different, uh, different uh, um, uh, parameters that uh, you can uh, tune. And these are bio-inspired because they mimic our understanding of the human brain. What is the problem? The problem is, uh, is that while their promise to, uh, is uh, to be low latency, low power, and um, high update rate, so high bandwidth uh, control promise, unfortunately, the performance is not the same as a standard neural network. So if you want to use it for tasks uh, or computer vision tasks like uh, face recognition, pedestrian detection and tracking, at the moment they do not shine, they do not reach the same level of accuracy of standard neural networks. Um, the problem is simply because still uh, backpropagation is not completely solved uh, and there are other issues uh, um, in modeling these networks that are also trained at the moment in uh, simulation and so there is a symmetry gap uh, there too. Um, but, but they hold a lot of promise for control. So um, three years ago we started a collaboration with uh, Intel Neuromorphic from Munich, uh, Professor Yulia Sandamilskaya who is a professor at the ZHV, which is the Zurich University of Applied Scientists. And we used an Intel Loihi chip installed on a copter to do a reflex control task. The task was to basically mimic the rotation of a line uh, where the visual stimulus was being triggered by an event camera connected to an Intel Loihihi chip, a neuromorphic device, running a spiking network. And we showed that you, for the first time you could do actually uh, this reflex control task with the latency that was below a millisecond. Actually, the, the biggest latency was coming from the mechanical latency of the platform. Of course, the smaller the platform, the lower the latency typically. So, but this holds a lot of promise for two reasons. You can do a high bandwidth control, which is very important for, for many platforms. Uh, not only for robotics, it's also important for prosthetic devices. And that's also something I was uh, surprised to learn recently. But in uh, many uh, prosthetic devices, uh, for example, uh, when you wear a prosthetic limb, you want to be able to update and send control commands uh, with the high control bandwidth. Mm -hmm. And now more and more prosthetic devices have been embedded with vision sensors in order to have an awareness of uh, your, uh, the environment around yourself. Because we when we uh, grasp an object, we look at the object and many things. And so having a more uh, an enriched sensor also on your limb would actually be helpful. And so if you can embed this with an event camera, then provides a high control, uh, uh, high bandwidth control commands that would, can only be a plus. Well, I mean, it's very inspiring and leads me to the last couple of questions uh, just before closing the episode. So one of them is uh, regards the future, uh, the future of robotics, uh, the, the future of drones. Uh, what do you see ahead as, you know, the next technologies or the next big thing that we should look at? Difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> the next big thing. So I... I always uh, um, uh, have a look at new sensors. I'm not saying the event camera is uh, the answer, is an enabler. Um, I bet on event cameras, uh, but there are many other sensors uh, out there and also many more that I don't know uh, about. So for example, radars now are gaining popularity again. And there are people looking at radars because they can see, of course, uh, in the darkness, uh, in uh, hail, uh, 
snow and rain where actually not even lidar can mm -hmm. see also they can see in, in the fog mm -hmm. where lidar cannot see uh, radar is very a very complex sensor to use because of all the interferences that you detect uh, yeah. Uh, multi-path uh, problems and so on but also because it's so challenging it's so fascinating and the, what I didn't know is that there are so few roboticists working on radars uh, and so that's something to definitely look at because they are getting smaller cheaper uh, low power um, meaning that the, the signal to noise ratio is becoming you know bigger uh, while maintaining low power so it's certainly something that we may put on a drone on a mini drone because it's not that we have to build drones and mimic uh, human pilots. So we can also have superhuman drones that use multiple sensors. That's actually would be the best to have a, a drone that can see in any conditions for whatever use case you want to have. Regarding uh, vision sensors, uh, I'm thinking about thermal cameras that are also little explored in uh, robotics. Also, I'm thinking about programmable cameras. Uh, I'm thinking about the SCAMP sensor. Not many people know, but this is something that uh, is more known in the cheap uh, uh, design community. It's a camera uh, that has programmable pixels. You can even program the pixels to react uh, to illumination like an event camera, or you can learn <laughs> actually how the behavior of these chips should be depending on the scenario. That would basically revolutionize everything. And so I'm uh, hoping to see some leaps in that direction. Um, what else? Uh, on the hardware side, uh, we also are witnessing more and more co-design. So designing uh, parallel design of software and hardware at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, there, if you have FPGA, you can design algorithms that can run properly in FPGA. But so basically, class of algorithms that are uh, specific to an hardware for a specific uh, type of uh, sensor and so on. So, for example, um, IPU um, um, uh, computing platforms from Graph Core are actually asynchronous. It could be ideal for event cameras, mm -hmm. besides only FPGA or, or spiking net or spiking chips. So there, is, there are many things that are happening. We just have to venture into, you know, outside of the comfort zone and look at what is happening in other fields. I like to go a lot to vision conferences um, because there is a lot of contamination that we, can, we as roboticists can get mm -hmm. from, uh, from a vision. How do you feel about um, the branch of robotics called uh, uh, soft robotics? Uh, is it something that piques your interest? Beautiful. I've been thinking about also starting some soft robotics uh, and sometimes I'm discussing things, ideas with uh, Robert, uh, Professor Robert Kachman from EDH. It's beautiful. I think uh, that uh, some f in the future we will see, you know, some, some robots will be soft. I mean, I, I don't see hard, rigid robots. I actually see only soft robots in many, many things. Um, so that is certainly something that is going to happen. They are very difficult to model and you need a lot of sensors. That's where event-driven sensors are also very useful in, in soft robotics. Uh, I would like to mention Professor Daniele Pucci and Chiara Bartolozzi from the Italian Institute of Technology who are also working besides other things on event-driven skin that basically mm. mimics the skin of, uh, of animals and humans to, that is actually, you know, it's uh, sent, uh, triggered by an event. If you keep pushing your skin constantly, you don't feel it anymore. 
So it's really truly event driven and also also there some millisecond latency. So these things are happening and they can revolutionize uh, you know and robots because if you have an intelligent skin then you have a safer robot for uh, for industrial uh, settings. This is truly inspiring. Um, and leads me also to the last question uh, of this episode, which is um, trying to inspire future students. So normally we like to close the episodes with uh, uh, advice to those who are venturing into the field, say of uh, robotics or control. Uh, if you have any piece of advice, uh, what, what would you give to a, a new student? My main piece of advice is to venture into the impossible. That's uh, in a quote uh, from Arthur Clarke, the great, uh, one of the greatest uh, science fiction writers. Uh, but it was also my philosophy when uh, I uh, entered the field of magic, uh, because that's what magic tries to, to do, to basically do the impossible. I think everything is possible and often what keeps us uh, away from uh, doing things uh, uh, that appear impossible is our fear of uh, exiting the comfort zone. So I would say uh, I recommend all uh, young PhD students to try to exit their, uh, common zone, their comfort zone, try to look at uh, the key challenges around us, start from real world problems and uh, how we could address them. Um, and I think any person from any location in the world can make a big change from our, for our world because, uh, you know, for example, let's think about self-driving cars. You know, if you only test your car and do research in, 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 uh, in Phoenix, uh, that is in the middle of the desert, uh, and, uh, you know, it's one of the sunniest places on Earth, you are never going to encounter so much rain, hail and snow as you would see, I don't know, so in other places. Or, for example, if you instead are researching in India, you will have the chance to have, uh, you know, a, a very crowded scene with a lot of traffic and crazy uh, cars that, 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 that traverse the street here and there. They will not see, for example, in, the, in, uh, in other uh, cities in the United States. So take look around yourself, look at what are the opportunities that are around you and try to make basically a change. Uh, look at what um, uh, standard algorithms uh, have done and where try to basically break them into, um, decompose them into different problems, see where they actually test them, re-implement them, see where they break and try to basically use uh, these failure points as an inspiration to find new problems to solve. So this is basically my my piece of advice. Well, Davide, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I hope you liked the show today. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, support on Patreon or PayPal, and connect with us on social media platforms. See you next time.